Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. Our guest today is Professor Rena Lewis, who is currently a professor of cultural studies at London College of Fashion, University of the Arts London. She's the author of many articles and several books, ranging from across gender studies, queer studies, and Middle Eastern studies, including Gendering Orientalism, Rethinking Orientalism, Women, Travel, and the Ottoman Harem, and the subject of today's podcast, Muslim Fashion, out 2015 from Duke University Press. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we always start off with a bit of a biographical question, sort of your intellectual biography. How did you come to academia? I came to academia through art school. Um, when I was at school, I wanted to be an artist. And in those days, you did what in Britain we call a foundation course. So after you've done your A-levels at 18, you then go and spend a year specialising in the visual arts and you do everything from graphics to fashion design to textiles for a whole year, which I found completely fantastic. Um, And I went to Leeds University to do the BA in fine art, which was actually a fine art and fine art practice and art history programme. And I went there specifically because I wanted to study feminist art history with Professor Griselda Pollock. And at that point, that was one of the very few places where you could do feminist art history. And I had four wonderful years there, and then I realised I wasn't necessarily going to make it as an artist, and I somehow found my my way onto the MA in Critical Theory at Sussex University. And when I say I realised I wasn't going to make it as an artist, that wasn't because I thought I'm not going to sell well. It was more that I realised I wasn't going to move forward with that. It was a very political programme. And I don't think we would have really considered um, making art to sell for the market. That would have been far too selling out to the man and the establishment. I spent many years, you know, waiting for the revolution and thinking that we would be making art to serve the purpose of social change. But um, fortunately, I discovered I really liked the history and theory side as well. So I went to Sussex to do the MA in critical theory. And I thought that would be very, very interdisciplinary. And it was relatively interdisciplinary, but there wasn't really very much about visual culture. So I sort of learned the hard way to deal with literary sources as well as visual sources. And I thought that you did theory in order to change the world. And I got there and discovered it was full of postmodern boys, POMO boys from Oxbridge, um, who'd gone there because their tutors told them it would get them a good job. Um, So I'm not really sure who was the most disappointed, but I did have a wonderful time. And then after a break where I was doing um, what I suppose you'd now call activist work. So this was a lot of um, LGBTQ activism at the time and also what used to be called development education. So anti-racist education, anti-imperial education initiatives. I started on my PhD and I started on my PhD because the British Academy was kind enough to give me a grant and I was passionate about the research. And at that point, I still didn't think that I would have a job in the Academy. I thought I'd have to grow up and be a youth worker or a social worker or get a job at Marks and Spencers. Um, And then I got some teaching and the part-time teaching paid more than the part-time youth work that I had been financing myself with. And that's how I started. Long answer. No, it's a wonderful one. I have to ask you, have you seen um, some of your sort of activist self in academia, sort of enacted in the profession? I would like to think so. Um, In some ways, yes, in terms of the way that I prefer to collaborate with my colleagues um, and sort of support students. But also, I think in my work, 
you know, people often say to me, how did you come to be writing about Muslim fashion? You're not Muslim, which indeed I'm not. Um, and for me, it's really about politics. It's about using research to challenge stereotype and prejudice. Well, so the reason, I mean, I found out about your book, Muslim Fashion, through a vlog, actually, which is quite unusual because I don't, and it was a fashion vlog, Dina Tokyo. Oh, yes. Um, Dina Turkia is, is the vlogger, who I believe you've appeared on the BBC with before. I've had that um, privilege. And How underdressed did I feel? Well, she also, I think in the same vlog, she received your book and she showed it off, like she'd gotten it in the mail or someone sent it to her. And she... Again, like, I mean, I think this was something that was really appreciated by the Muslim community in many different ways. So it does have an impact. And the fact that you're on the BBC speaking about modest fashion is, I mean, there, there is the, I mean, the impact of the Academy is something that I think we're all always thinking of, um, especially me as an, as, an aspire, as an aspiring academic. So I guess I have to ask, what was the genesis of this book? Because you, I mean, one thing I've sort of admired about your career is that you span different disciplines. Um, different subject matters, and you, and you do all of them really well, too. Well, thank you. That's extremely kind of you. I'll come back to the genesis of this book in a moment. But I guess that what I would say is that my work has always been interdisciplinary in different ways. And although for the last many years, certainly in the humanities, interdisciplinarity and in parts of the social sciences, interdisciplinarity has been sort of intellectually very sexy, in terms of employment, it's quite difficult because generally, when you're looking for a job, the budget hold the budget holders are organised by disciplines. It's the English department, the sociology department, the art history department, um, and even subjects like, for example, women or gender studies that might cross departments also might often have budget streams that come within particular departments or faculties. And I think, you know, talking to you as a um, early career researcher this is also one of the elements in terms of choosing research projects and being employable um, and so when my I did my PhD I looked at um, art historical sources and literary sources I was looking at gender and orientalism really responding to the agenda setting work of, of Edward Said and thinking well how does gender fit into his picture of Orientalism, along with other scholars such as Sarah Mills, Sarah Suleri, and of course, following the footsteps of Gayatri Spivak. And in those days, talking about literature and gender, literature and art history together was a bit of a departure, although that now seems routine. And then when I went on for rethinking Orientalism to think, well, how did, if gendering Orientalism looked at how elite white Western women from Europe engaged with imperial cultures. Then I wanted to look at, well, how did women from within the, quote, Orient or Muslim world engage with those imperial cultures? And so I started to look at the, um, the late 19th century um, in the Ottoman Empire. This was a period when female literacy was on the increase. And for most elite Ottoman women, they weren't necessarily Arabic, um, literate in Osmanla or Arabic, they weren't going to be ulema, they didn't need to be literate in that language, they had literacy and accomplishment languages, so German, French, English. So I found books that were written in English, they weren't in translation, in which they were engaging with some of those Western stereotypes, and they were speaking to two audiences, to a Western readership, and to the progressive elite at home, who were, of course, all literate in European languages. But what I found there Although I came to be by default something of an Ottomanist, if I would go for positions in post-colonial studies, then departments might say, well, that's really great, but we don't want an Ottomanist. We want an Africanist or a South Asianist, etc. And um, that was a different set of boundary crossings. Now, with looking at fashion, I've been crossing more into fashion studies and sociology of religion and cultural sociology. So I've gone from talking about dead people in their books or dead people in their paintings to live human subjects and what they create, sell, market, wear and write about. So that's been really, really interesting. And what I find as I go forward is 
that there are so many connections across that particular interdisciplinary path that I've taken. And when I read the work of other people, I see other forms of interdisciplinarity. So that's been a real privilege to be able to do that. But then it continues to be difficult when you think about, well, how do you market your book? Yeah, I can imagine just because I think another thing that you, I mean, that you've surely, I'm making an assumption here that you've encountered is the fact that fashion people don't take that seriously. I mean, in the academy, I'm assuming, I'm not a scholar of fashion, but I can see the way people approach it in everyday life. This isn't considered an art form. Um, fashion is often seen as inherently trivial. Um, and yet, you know, you can make the business case, you can talk about how many billions of dollars or billions of pounds the fashion industry is worth. You can talk about the aesthetic merit of fashion as an art form, as design. You can think about fashion and the environment and the increasing focus on sustainability, which I know for our students at London College of Fashion is a big motivation, a big preoccupation. And you can think about it in, in sociological terms. One of the things that's interested me is that when I think about modest fashion, a lot of the young Muslim women that I've spoken to specifically use fashion or they want to use fashion as a form of communication, also of a way of signaling to non-Muslims, many of whom, of whom view them with stereotype and prejudice, that they are part of modernity, that they are part of modern Britain or modern Canada, modern America, wherever. And I guess that to return to your earlier question of, you know, how did I get into this book? Having worked on Orientalism and on historical cultures of imperialism for a long time, what I saw after 9-11 was this terrible securitizing discourse, the prevalence of ideas of a civilizational clash. Um, and pictures, there were so many stories, alarmist scare stories about you know, all Muslims as a potential terrorist threat, as if Muslims were not, of course, themselves the victims of terrorism and equally at risk of terrorism as anybody else. Um, but that the newspapers were full of images of visibly Muslim women, women whose clothing marked them as Muslim, often used to illustrate a story that was nothing to do with them. And on the streets of Britain, as elsewhere, in London and in the UK, I could see all these cool young hijabis. There was an increasing number of young women who were covering their heads, sometimes in response to uh, those prejudices and challenges to sort of to destigmatize a sign, a clothing form that was the cause of stigmatization. And they were doing it, you know, they were dressing from the high street. They were looking very cool and very funky, very modern, very fashionable but they weren't in the style pages. So whereas at the moment, modest fashion is having a fashion moment, it's all over the catwalks, it's all over the style magazines. 10, 12 years ago, this was absolutely not the case. And you know, the strap line for my last book could have been Muslim fashion overrepresented in the news media, underrepresented in the style media, because the fashion industry was not only ignoring this style constituency that was out there, but actually was by and large aversive to being publicly associated with Muslims. So one thing I want to tease out is something that's an implicit argument of the book. I think it's super implicit. I think it's something that I think you sort of have to be looking for if, if you want to see it is that, and you've it sort of referenced this right now, is a lot of these are younger people, younger people identify as female and Muslim. And I think one thing, I mean, just to talk about how things are trivialized, fashion is often trivialized, um, but also young people. And they're really the arbiters of choice. They really set the trends that, 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 I mean, they determine what we watch in many ways. They determine what music we listen to just because they're sort of so on trend and they pick up on things before other people. And I think this is something you can also see in the Muslim community is just sort of how how um, fashion sort of moves up. It, it begins with these innovators who are, you know, as young as 13 or 12. Um, and then it, it trickles onwards. I mean, modest fashion, we've seen just so many different mainstream trends, sort of looser blouses become a thing, higher necklines, just in mainstream fashion itself. Um, so I was wondering if we could talk about the term Muslim, because you've again referenced um, the term modest fashion. 
I also grew up with the term Islamic dress, which you reference in the book. Um, but Muslim as an identity, as, as um, these 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 women that you're seeing and that you write about, um, what is this this vision of Muslim that that you read into the way they present themselves and the way they speak about themselves? I mean, I think you're really right to pick up on the generational angle. Um, and one of the points that maybe we don't need to make now, but, you know, very often if a Muslim woman walks down the road wearing any form of headscarf or head covering, non-Muslims will look at her and think, well, she's being forced to do that by the evil Muslim patriarchs, whether it's her husband, her brother, the imam or her father. And whilst indeed, of course, there are many Muslim women not in a position to choose how they dress, clearly in states where, whether it's Iran or Saudi Arabia, where the state is controlling how women and how men dress, or because of family and community pressure. Of course, when I walk down the road, I'm subject to forms of surveillance and regulation as well. However, there are increasing numbers of young women who are engaging with religious cultures for a variety of reasons. And in many cases, the young women who are wearing headscarves are not doing it because their family wants them to. Quite often their families don't want them to for a whole host of reasons. Many young women come from families where from a number of different um, geographical uh, heritages, but where their mothers and their grandmothers stopped covering and don't regard it as modern to cover. So now there's a new generation who are re-engaging with the holy texts, often engaging with online uh, religious learning and discussion and making their own interpretation. So for them, it is all about choice. And I think for them, sometimes arguing that something is Islamic or religious is also a way of challenging what might be the community cultural norms of a parental generation. Whether that's saying, so you oft, I would often hear the phrase, oh, it's that's culture, not religion. So the idea that, you know, you should have an arranged marriage, that's culture, not religion, or girls shouldn't go to university, that's culture, not religion, or, you know, good Muslim girls wear shalwar kameez. Well, no, that's culture, not religion, as long as I'm covering, the garments is up to me. And this is both generational distinction and also micro-generational distinction, because these 13-year-olds that you mention, they wouldn't be seen dead in the same clothes as their 25-year-old sisters. Um, in terms of Islamic or Muslim as terminology, that's a really tough one. I decided to refer to Muslim fashion rather than Islamic fashion. And in theory, I think I should have been more cautious to always refer to Muslim modest fashion. Um, there are plenty of Muslims who are consciously self-identified as Muslim who would not dress in the sorts of ways that I describe in that book, but they are still Muslims wearing fashion. So that differentiation is something that I'm still thinking about. I avoided Islamic fashion because for me, Islamic implied a judgment value that this was the Islamically correct way to interpret any of the different religious sources. And um, Sarah Joseph, who was the editor of the British magazine ML, the Muslim lifestyle magazine, said to me once, you know, there's one Islam, there's many Muslims. And that for me was always a very helpful way of thinking about the many different ways in which Muslim fashion might happen. You know, you wouldn't say there's Islamic food, there might be food that's halal, but you might be eating food that's a halal American beef burger, you might be eating South Asian food, you might be eating Korean food, it's all, it can all be halal. Um, I think that Islamic fashion is a term in the fashion industry, there are brands that sell themselves as we make Islamic fashion, and that's partly how they want to pitch themselves. Others might call themselves more broadly Muslim fashion, but Muslim fashion isn't so much a commercial term, the commercial term is modest fashion and even that it's a it's a difficult term um should i say a little bit about why well modest fashion as a term emerged in the niche market which was often an online market where women designers and creative entrepreneurs from a number of religious traditions needed felt the need to make the clothes that they couldn't find in the stores for themselves or for their teenage daughters. 
And they discovered very quickly that they had consumers from other faith backgrounds. If you need a maxi skirt, a long skirt to the ground that doesn't have a slit um, or that has a lining or that isn't made of transparent chiffon, then whether you're Jewish, Christian or Muslim, you'll buy it from the same brand because you all want the same sort of garment. And so some brands that might have started out calling themselves, for example, kosher casual or Muslim fashion or Muslim mode, decided that they found out that the term modest was more likely to be com comfortable for consumers from different religious backgrounds or from multiple religious backgrounds. Modest fashion also goes out of fashion because many of the women involved are feminist and don't like the associations of the term modest. They say, I'm not self-abnegating, I'm not humble, I'm very assertive. And when I was talking to designers in sort of 2008, 2009, 2010, many of them had stopped using modest fashion. They said it was the kiss of death with mainstream buyers. If they were trying to get into a mainstream store, modest was just as difficult to use as Muslim or any other religious label. I think it's really interesting that as a fashion type, it's getting a lot of play at the moment in the style press. That also will pass. But at the moment, if you open a fashion magazine, you might see references to a modest dress or a modest shirt. Now, the modest shirt might be, as you say, you know, a ruffled high neck with a very full sleeve. It might be styled with a pair of hot pants, but they'll still refer to it as a modest shirt. So it's becoming a descriptor in the mainstream as well, which it really was not seven or eight years ago. Yeah, I think this last um, London Fashion Week has been described as a big moment for, I mean, it was marketed as a big moment for modest fashion. And, and I think you're right, the term will pass in and out because, um, as you said, there, I mean, modesty has all these different connotations. And I think, like you said, something can be loud and be immodest, even when it's covering something, according to one interpretation, just because it's covering one's chest or one's butt doesn't necessarily mean that it's not immodest because it can be loud and it can draw attention. And there are these, all these connotations of what it is to be modest and what it is to sort of, I think, this issue of identity and how one asserts themselves as a personality too. But at the same time, that idea that you might have your flesh covered, but it's loud and immodest is also something that many women will challenge. So I've had, you know, Orthodox Jewish um, fashion bloggers say to me, you know, I get so much criticism from conservative women saying, you know, that's too loud, that's not modest. And the blogger will say to me, well, you know, no, I'm covering as I need to be covered. I like bright jewellery. I like big patterns. You know, this is another version of modesty. It's not just the territory of the ultra conservative or of old women. So there's always this intra-religious disputation as well. And one of the other things to go back to the point you made about choice is. Within Western Europe, North America, as also in Australia, what I hear from a lot of modest fashion dressers and creative professionals from across the faiths is this emphasis on choice. You know, it's got to be a woman's choice. If it's not freely chosen, it's not spiritually or religiously authentic. Even if they might think it is religiously mandated and required, one has to be doing it authentically and freely. And of course, that emphasis on choice is both because this generation is the product of a Western liberal education with an emphasis on religious rights as human rights, and also because they're neoliberal consumer subjects in which choice is the overriding narrative. Now, their choices are contingent and constrained, just like mine are, just like anybody's is, whether it's about what you can afford, what's available on the market, what your family might say, what you have to wear for work, and also what your body type is like. You know, what might look modest on somebody who's got a very small chest and is very thin won't look modest on a much larger woman because of the way it's going to cling to the body. Yeah, and again, it's all about conceptions of this. And I think, again, choice, um, how an individual perceives it. I think there was a case with, I, I read this somewhere, it was a, an ethnography of Jewish women, and it's how style itself can enable one to be modest in other ways. But again, it's down to that interpretation of modest and whether or not one believes it to be a mandate of sorts. Um, 
So I was wondering if we could talk about genre, because we sort of um, talked about sort of the themes of the book, but this book defies academic genres. One of the lines I love from the introduction is the way you talk about history and the fact that this book is is not a history, not a history, but rather histories of several lived presents. And I thought that had a lot to do with the subject matter of fashion and, and sort of um, how fashion changes and the different temporalities um, that fashion as an industry faces, sort of what's in one season is out the other, but also what comes, what's on the catwalk one year will take two years to get to mainstream markets or vice versa. It, it depends on markets. Um, so would you relegate this book to any one category of academic thought or genre? I mean, you've already said that you sort of are very strategic, but also enjoy these different ways of thinking and engaging with them. I suppose I'm so glad you like that phrase. I really struggled with how to describe it, especially given that, you know, some of my other work has been more straightforwardly cultural history. Um, and, you know, if you're writing about elite women in Istanbul in the 1910s, it's the 1910s. You might find, you know, some more primary sources may, may come available, but it's not all going to suddenly and dramatically change the way that fashion does. So I do see it in a way as a history of the present and the history of several presents. Different academic disciplines, for a start, have different historical periodizations um, and also different ways of understanding the writing of history. I think that in a way... I would say it's cultural studies. And for me, cultural studies, which feels like has come to feel like my natural home, because I understand cultural studies as a field that can study culture in the widest sense, not just from opera to football, but in terms of material culture and our everyday experiences, how we make sense of ourselves in and through culture, but also to have a historical perspective. I'm not interested in contemporary cultural studies that doesn't also think about the past. Um, although I think that the contemporary and the ephemeral is also worthy of attention. So I would say this book is a crossover between being an exercise in cultural studies, but it also crosses over into sociology of religion or cultural sociology and also critical fashion studies, which would be a way of understanding a field of research that thinks about the industry, that is not sneery about the fact that there is an industry, but that also has a critical take on how we might understand that. So I know that people in the fashion field may find the book useful and there is material in there that could be of market value to them, but it's not a piece of consultancy or marketing for the fashion industry. And that people coming from migration or ethnicity studies or religious studies might not know that much about fashion and will find that interesting. And so one of the reasons my books are always so hideously big is, A, because I always think of big baggy projects, but also I'm always conscious that I'm writing for more than one audience. And I always try to have a bit in the intro or the preface that says, you know, if if the section on X is grindingly familiar to you, just skip over it because somebody else might need it. So you partly have to explain to people from Middle East studies, here's how the fashion industry works. And then to people from fashion studies, well, here's what we mean by key concepts in the sociology of religion. Uh, stop me if this goes on too long. But I remember once I was in um, Sweden giving a talk at a advanced school for. Um, I think it was Turkish studies. It was a wonderful school. And um, I was doing the research seminar and I thought, well, this is great. I'm talking about the the Tessita, the modest fashion industry in Turkey. I won't have to explain, you know, that Turkey is a secular Muslim republic. I won't have to explain about Ataturk and Kemalism. I won't have to explain about the then still fairly recent AKP Islamist government. I can just cut straight to the chase. And I had up my PowerPoint of images and I was talking about a, a catalogue, a print catalogue from one of the major Tessiter firms, where what I was talking about was how their fashion 
marketing materials had changed dramatically and that here was this um i'm miming it for you but you can't see it here was this image of their catalog which had gone from being square format with just a picture of a woman's head wearing the characteristically sharply defined um hard-edged Turkish scarf, tessiteur, to something that looked, it was um, portrait format, and it looked exactly like the front cover of Vogue, of a magazine, from the way that the model's head went, was sort of, was punctured the, the masthead across the top, to the three-quarter semi-profile um, shot of the model with um, nuggets of text around all the sides. And I was just summarizing this and saying, you know, so as you can see, it looks exactly like a magazine cover. And I turned away from the slide and looked back at the room. And with the exception of two people, they were all looking blank and perplexed. And I said, you don't know what a magazine cover looks like, do you? And they said, no. So I said, well, let me explain, because otherwise you won't understand the, the genre, the generic intervention that they're making here. And I thought, well, that's so interesting because I could be with other audiences that could give me chapter and verse on the history of magazine covers, but would know nothing about Turkish history. No, I, I do want to say, because you said that the book was hideously big, I don't think it's hideously large. I think it's 300 pages, which is easily 100 pages more than the average monograph. But there are wonderful images in yeah, the book. Thank and you. one thing you do very well is visually explain what a magazine cover looks like, just simply by including an image, but also how dramatically these change and how they vary from group to group. But I completely sympathize with you because um, I think one thing about this book that shows that you're writing it for different audiences, which is why someone interested in Middle East studies might be interested in it, but also someone who's interested in Muslim or Islamic studies, is the fact that there's a section on here and here on Turkey. Well, quite a large portion of the book is dedicated to Turkey. And one would think, well, Turkey and as you describe it, um, Wiener, the Western Europe and North America, sort of what is the relationship there? And I think one thing you do very well is both speak to audiences that would want to know individually about fashion in these locales, but also people who are thinking about global fashion. So specifically about Turkey, I was wondering if we could speak about it for a moment, because I think, I mean, I, I grew up in the Middle East. So when you mentioned sort of the way Turkish women veil, that made a lot of sense to me, because there was a point in like 2008 or so when women across the non-Turkish speaking Middle East began to adopt that veil sort of with them. Um, can you describe it? Because you described it so beautifully. Well, the, the classic form was the square silk or satin scarf, like a large square, about sort of maybe 70 or 100 centimetres, crossed into a triangle and then either tied under the chin or crossed under the chin and wrapped around and then tied at the back under the scarf. But what was very distinctive was the sort of the the beehive helmet likeness of this 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 rigid wimple like wimple like framing of the face which was sometimes achieved with cardboard women used to use um the old x-ray film the the, the plastic x-ray film or cardboard pieces and sometimes women would if they didn't have that much hair they would use a, a hairpiece or a scrunchie um, again, I'm miming it, but you know what I mean. And in the same way now, as many uh, women in different parts of the Arab world will achieve what's sometimes disparagingly referred to as the camel hump effect, where there's a lot of puff going on under there, which is sort of false advertising because there's not that much hair. There's something else happening underneath to give the volume in the same way as, you know, my mother's generation in Britain wore false hair to make their beehives look bigger. Um and so that very distinctive style um, was was a Turkish style. And within that, there were different differentiations. So and uh, Nasr Alaman, one of my uh, recently completed graduate students, wrote about um, Fethullah Gülen and other Turkish religious communities or tarikats where women from different uh, religious communities would have distinctive ways of tying. But more secular Turks wouldn't necessarily be able to read those distinctions. And in a way, that's where we come down to micro distinctions or subcultural trends that, you know, the people within that zone can understand. Just like, you know, if you're a goth, you'll know if you're this sort of goth or that sort of goth by the way you've tied your shoelaces. But I think Turkey is very interesting because Turkey was a leader in the commercial manufacture and distribution of modest fashion 
uh, for Muslims, often referred to in Turkey as tesetur or, or pious fashion, from the 1980s, really, with the liberalization of the economy. And in that context, what's interesting is that they were, this was in a Muslim majority country that was a secular republic. It was a Muslim secular republic rather than, for example, the Catholic French secular republic. Um, and in for many years, modest Muslim dressing in Turkey was uh, discriminated against and banned. You know, women couldn't wear a, a headscarf to universities for periods of time. What's interesting now is that other Muslim majority countries are challenging Turkey. So, for example, both uh, Malaysia is, is developing and also Indonesia. And what's very interesting in Indonesia is that whereas under the authoritarian regime of Suhatu, pious fashion was at times outlawed and certainly frowned upon. It's now being encouraged and developed by the current regime um, as part of their national economic strategy. And Carla Jones and others have written very brilliantly about this. So now you have a situation where modest fashion brands are being encouraged by the Ministry of Tourism and Culture. And that's also partly to do with maximizing the potential of the very well-established Indonesian textile industry. In the Middle East, in the Gulf states, and certainly in Dubai and in Sharjah, there's a significant Abaya designer industry, um, which Leslie George, another um, graduate student working with me, is about to complete her thesis on. And what's really interesting there is that whilst Dubai is trying really hard to position itself as a fashion centre, they, um, when they developed D3, their, their creative quarter in the last few years, it wasn't initially terribly welcoming of the modest fashion sector. Well, that makes a lot of sense, actually, because um, I grew up in the UAE. Well, I didn't grow up in the UAE. I spent high school in the UAE. And that makes sense because there's quite... There's quite a lot that goes into sort of crafting an abaya look, and often that goes with layering different um, levels of other designers, um, like the, the, the mainstream sort of like Gucci and things like that, and layering those underneath abaya. But also, I mean, the market for, I mean, a lot that this has to do with trade agreements, the way, um, the way um, Dubai functions as sort of as a, a hub, a commercial hub in the region. Um, but I was also, so, I mean, we're sort of getting onto the topic vaguely of marketing because, I mean, again, we're talking about sort of all of these different industries. Um, what are the nuances of marketing Muslim fashion um, through the lens of these different approaches, sort of, again, from the state, um, then from the more commercial sort of um, top, um, bottom up approach sort of how do those differ how do those take the young women we've sort of been talking about um throughout this interview both directly and indirectly into consideration and again i think there's also a movement within sort of these huge commercial mainstreams um like h&m last year used a muslim model for the first time a hijabi someone wearing a hijab um rihanna just used i mean this is makeup but um she just used a hijabi model so Sort of where do these all intersect? I've thrown a lot at you. I think, I mean, one of the things that intersects is to do with visible ethnic diversity. So I think it's really interesting you picked up on uh, Rihanna's Fenty range using Halima Aden, who is both black and out as a Muslim and as a headscarf wearing Muslim. One of the things that I think is 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 worth saying is that the niche market in modest fashion, so the cross-faith cross niche market in modest fashion, was made possible by the internet because it allowed small brands to start up. And, you know, online startups encourage specialism in anything from organic baby grows to plus size footwear. Um, it also allowed commentary to develop at the same time. And that meant that for this book, I could look both at product design at products and at the marketing of products, so commercial websites, as well as fashion editorial in print magazines, and then track as it emerged all the different forms of online fashion mediation, by which I mean blogging, YouTubing, Tumblr, Instagram, 
and so on. And as the visually led uh, channels came on, so for example, Tumblr, that made it much easier to upload images and to comment on images. And I think it's worth pointing out that emojis become a form of transnational youth language. You can comment on an Indonesian blogger or an Arabic blogger, even if you can't read, because you can see the image and you can like or you can put down an emoji. And of course, now you can use translation software. So that led to another wave of self-imaging bloggers and people. Um, if you buy something from a brand, you might send them an image of you wearing it and so on. And what we see here is sort of the self-marketing as well as the professional marketing. And this, of course, is goes back to the concept of the, the emphasis on choice and also this sense of the enterprising self, the, the neoliberal subject who is formed through consumption practices. Um, which is one of the key ways in which this younger generation of Muslims has so much in common with their peers and where I think politically it's really important to de-exceptionalise young Muslims and point to how many commonalities there are with their peer group, whether it's an increased interest in the immaterial world, all those young people that tick the sign on the census that says spiritual, not religious, um, an emphasis on culture, a familiarity with world cultures, whether it's world music, world food, world fashion, and an engagement in social media. So then when I think about marketing, on one hand, I wanted to look at how Muslim designers, as with designers from other faith backgrounds, dealt with the challenges of marketing something that was linked for them to religion, which for most people in fashion is deeply unsexy and unsaleable, and also the role of professional marketers, as also with professional journalists and fashion mediators. And that's where I think the link with ethnic marketing in terms of diversity is important as well, because one of the things that ethnic marketing did, whether it was sort of responding to, and to some extent commodifying the developments of uh, black power, in 1960s, 1970s North America, um, or the marketing of food, which is one of the areas where, where it developed. It also um, creates opportunities for people working in marketing to commodify their ethnic or ethno-religious background. So it may be that if you're involved in marketing ethnic food to the Hispanic population in America, the fact in North America, the fact that you are Hispanic may give you an added value in the workplace. It may also mean that you get stuck in that sector and can't develop other career enhancing opportunities. So I was really interested in um, in some of the follow up work I've done, looking at how marketing fashion to Muslims fits into the wider construction amongst marketing professionals of fields of professional activity aimed at Islamic branding and Muslim marketing. And the people I interviewed in professional marketing when I was working on this book, and I've gone on to sort of follow up on this and write about it more, I think it's really interesting because there is some really smart thinking happening there. And there is some really interesting messaging, as they would say, about diversity within the Muslim population, that it's not a one size fits all. And that's partly because you want to market better to make more sales. And also because, you know, some of the people involved in this are genuinely motivated to produce better images of the groups that they seek to market to. You know, they are both part of that community and selling to it. It's a very uh, double edged relationship. So one thing, because we've been talking so much about Muslims and Islam, but very much in sort of, as you called it, your natural home, the cultural study sense of the word, I was wondering, because you referenced this in the book at some point, what is the role of piety in Muslim fashion? Because I think there are, there are some in the field who would argue that um, in the field of, of general studies relating to Islam, and Muslims that that modest dress can condition piety often, and that's often why people choose it. But I'm not quite sure if that's what the point of your book, the argument of your book, or even necessarily um, what the argument you're addressing. I think 
you know, obviously Sabah Mahmood's work here has been really influential in her study of women in the early piety movements in Egypt in the second half of the 20th century, where she writes for me very convincingly about the role of modest dress as a repeated daily practice, putting on the headscarf or the hijab or the robe as part of the the cultivating of a pious disposition. It's not that the subject is a priori pious, but that engaging in these practices of dress, as with other prayerful practices, cultivates and disciplines and reproduces the pious subject. And I think that's a really important argument. I think it's also important to note that there are many women walking around with headscarves on who aren't doing it for reasons of piety. They're doing it because they want to challenge uh, mainstream stereotypes and presumptions. For them, it's a political act. There are other women who are wearing a headscarf because it acts as an alibi, because it will mean that their parents will feel reassured that they're going to behave properly when they go away to university, et cetera, et cetera. So women do this for a whole number of reasons. And also there are many Muslim women who are observant Muslims and consciously pious who do not consider it necessary to cover their hair or who even if they may see it as a religious obligation don't feel able to comply with that at various points in their life but whose dress and embodiment and behavior also accords in other ways with their understanding of modesty and for me one of the points of the book is to say there's many different interpretations of modesty in amongst Muslims as amongst any other faith groups. And it's not my job to say this is the right way or the wrong way. Um, in fact, when I would be reaching out to people to interview them, whether they were brands or bloggers or you know civilians, individuals, my, my polite opening email got longer and longer because I started including answers to the frequently asked questions. Um, and one of them would be, for example, this is not commercial research, because if you're a brand and I write to you from London College of Fashion, you might think I'm starting my own competing fashion line. Well, you know, they don't know I can't sew to save my life. So I would say this is academic research. This is not commercial research. And I would also say I'm not opposed to hijab. Neither am I advocating it. I notice that more women are wearing it in a number of fashionable and interesting ways. And I think this merits serious scholarly attention. And that was the line I always tried to take. I am also aware that in having focused in this book primarily on women who do cover their heads for a whole sort of reasons, I also reinforce or re-emphasize that as a marker of Muslim piety or identity or practice. And that can also therefore give less attention to other forms of consciously Muslim, consciously spiritual or pious dress and behavior. And so part of my upcoming research is to try and find ways to track that, to think about that. In a way, it's not surprising that that's where my research went, as with so many other academics working in this field, because so much of the public discourse and the hate crimes and the prejudice have been focused on Muslim women made visible by covering their heads, which, of course, may be a reason why some others have stopped doing it. Um, so now I think the next journey is, is to look beyond that and widen the frame still further. I would say one more thing about piety, which is some of the approaches I found really helpful in explaining my my take on this were approaches from um, the sociology of religion concerned with everyday religion or daily religion. Um, people like Maguire and Ammerman, who, who really emphasize that on a daily practice, religion is syncretic, it's blended, it's idiosyncratic, it's contradictory and it's changeable. Um, and I think many people will find when they reflect on their own lives, that makes perfect sense. Um, but I think when an external observer might often imagine that this particular Muslim woman represents Islam, it's very helpful to keep emphasizing that no religion is homogenous in its experience in the real world. So that even if there are religious leaders or religious individuals or groups who are quite happy to tell you that, you know, this is what God requires or this is the Islamic or the Jewish or the Christian way to dress or behave, 
all of the evidence shows us that there is such a diversity of practice and that's what needs to be attended to. No, I think you're actually, your vocabulary in the book is very measured. It's very inclusive. And I think, as you mentioned, the hijab is a big part of the way Muslim people who identify as Muslim and, um, or otherwise even can, can choose to present themselves. But I think, again, there's, there's sort of hints at your future project in the book itself. So one last question sort of on this issue of inclusion and exclusion is that, again, the book is called Muslim Fashion. It's not called Muslim women's fashion. So what's the place of men in Muslim fashion? And of course, again, you have mentioned, of course, um, the fact that there are certain things that do merit attention. So sort of how does that play out in the field of how men are considered with regards to fashion? Well, I guess that one of the things that many women engaged in practices of Muslim modest dressing would say is that the holy texts require modest dress and behavior from men as well as from women. And I would often hear, you know, men should be covered from the navel to the knee. Uh, men should lower their gaze and not be staring inappropriately and so on. It is unsurprising that it is women whose appearance is both the most highly surveyed and regulated and the most guarded because you know, in the world we live in, that's true of nearly all women from any community. In religious minority and ethnic minority communities, and especially in diaspora contexts, women often bear the burden of both representing and guarding uh, community convention and tradition, and of, you know, the presumption that it's them that's going to transmit it to the next generation. So women are under more pressure than men. Um, and, you know, the fashion industry, by and large, focuses more on women. So, you know, we now have in London, as well as London Fashion Week, we now have men's London. So we now have, you know, the sector is diversified and specialized so that menswear designers and brands get their own time to do the catwalks. Well, that's only very recent. So, you know, it's not surprising that in terms of a, a niche fashion industry, most of it is for women because most of the fashion industry is aimed at women. There are plenty of cool Muslim men. Um, it's very interesting. I was on a panel last week with Shanina Jan Mohammed, whose book um, Generation X came out recently, and she's with Ogilvy Noor, the um, Islamic branding uh, division of Ogilvy Mather. And she, somebody asked this question, and one of the examples she came up with was uh, a couple of Muslim men who've started um, selling very cool beard grooming products, beard oils, which is, you know, a very typical uh, Muslim product for men who grow beards. But of course, now with the hipster phenomenon, there's loads of men in London with lots of be with beard hair to deal with. So they're finding a, a crossover market there. And I think that the niche market is less developed. There are certainly brands selling in, in Europe, um, in Britain, selling um, robes for men or thobes, some of them quite classic and white, others of them more sort of street style and funky for the men that want to wear that. And I think that there are subcultures of style amongst young Muslim men. So when I see in East London on a Friday, teenage boys going to mosque wearing a white thobe, often over their over their jeans, um, and certainly what I can see sticking out the bottom are this year's trainers. Um, now, because I'm an old lady and not a cool young dude, I can't tell whether they're wearing this year's killer trainers or the, the trainers that were called two months ago. But there's certainly a lot of trainer action going on. And I'm sure they're all hip to all of that. And I'm sure they're all wearing the white, the right socks as well. Now, they may well take those off when they get to the mosque, but in their transition zone, that's what they're seeing. So I think there's scope for some interesting research there. Yeah, especially with, I mean, you live in London, you've probably noticed the large, I feel like London always swells each summer with visitors from the Gulf. And the phenomenon, I mean, they're very, very brand men who, uh, men from the Arab Gulf, who come to London during the summer are very obsessed with brands and just like displaying the name of the designer. Um, and they're also not wearing like thobes from the region, these like white um, robe like garments. I mean, they're very conscious about sort of fitting in, but also not fitting in because they're very egregious in sort of their choice. But what you've brought up there is something really interesting, which is the super rich from the Gulf states 
um, as also from Saudi Arabia, who come to London in the summer. You know, this is a very small percentage of the global population and a small percentage of the national population there. And what's very interesting is, yes, sometimes when they come, the women from these who are over here are wearing their abayas, but a lot of the time they're not. And this is a real difference because when you talk to women in Dubai who are wearing a, an abaya, it, it gives them the distinction of being an Emirati. It's not really often or always about religious conviction. If you see a woman in London who is from London wearing an abaya, she is more likely to be wearing it either out of personal piety or community convention. When I was in Saudi Arabia last year, briefly in Jeddah, I talked to lots of cool young women abaya designers who all said, well, no, we don't wear this when we're in Europe. It's, it's culture, not religion. And what I thought was so interesting there, and this will be part of my follow up project is, you know, I might hear young women in Britain say it's culture, not religion. My parents think um, there's a wonderful piece by Claire Dyer where she looked talking to young Muslim girls in, I think, Bradford in the Midlands in the 1990s who are who are fighting with their moms because they don't want to wear shower kameez, which is what a good Muslim girl should wear. And they say, no, you know, I want to wear jeans and a tunic and a headscarf because that's religion. What you want me to wear is culture. So then in, in Jeddah, I hear, you know, it's culture, not religion. And I think, well, that's really interesting because actually in Saudi Arabia, it's the law. So what does culture mean when it's the law? But nonetheless, those women, when they come to London, they may or may not be covering modestly, but they don't wear an abaya and many of them aren't covering their hair. Yeah, there's a there's like a so it's so context specific. There's actually a moment where you there like there's a when you're on when you're in an airplane leaving Saudi Arabia where there's a ping that goes off on the plane and the women start just taking them off because they they've heard the ping that sort of announces we're out of Saudi air air territory and just it's amazing and of course again if they're of the richer upper class the super rich it's all designers it's all layered it's 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 really quite a spectacle. Um, but you've been hinting at your future projects and sort of how they, I mean, again, the book is just really good at sort of hinting at the fact that certain things need more work and they're not within the scope of this book, but you're getting at them. So can you sort of tell us what you're working on right now? Well, it's very nice of you to give me the opportunity. And, you know, the only way I get to finish a book is by thinking, OK, so what comes next? Because I have a terrible desire to get bigger and bigger and explain everything. And it drives my editors insane. And also, you know, when I wrote my first book, I was so, so thrilled. I'm still so thrilled when I finish a book and that somebody's kind enough to publish it. But what I've realized now is that we have to think of even books as work in progress. And especially with this book on fashion, where the trends have changed, the companies have gone out of business, the bloggers have stopped blogging, there's new bloggers coming on, there's new trends. You know, it's a snapshot of, of a moment. Um, and that sense of what comes now, well, I'm interested to pursue more research on looking at the dress practices of Muslim women who don't cover their hair, but do dress or rather Muslim women who don't cover their hair and who dress with modesty in mind. Um, how they feel about whether they are visible as Muslim or not. And I'm also interested in then how that fits into their needs as consumers. So I heard for a long time from Muslim modest dressers that they were being ignored by the mainstream fashion industry. At the moment, because it's on trend, their needs are being a little better met. But in the in the pilot projects I've done about women who stopped covering, which I might refer to colloquially as djabis, as also with Orthodox Jewish women who stopped covering after marriage, depending on how you styled your headscarf or hijab, once you stop covering, you have to also change the way that you cover the body. So let's say you're going to work in a, a trouser suit with a shirt. Well, if you wore your hijab sort of draped slightly across your chest, if the top button of your collar was a bit below your collarbone, that didn't really matter because it was covered by your scarf. When you're not wearing a scarf, do you need a different shirt? Do you have to change the way that you dress? And how might the fashion industry learn what those needs are if it's interested in meeting them? I'm also interested in how wearing a hijab marks you as Muslim, 
but it also marks you ethnically. Now, obviously, Islam is not an ethnicity, but it is often treated as such and can be quasi-ethnicizing in terms of the discrimination um, that Muslims receive. So I've spoken to um, a couple of Muslim women who've stopped covering their hair and who find then that their ethnicity is read differently by the people they encounter going about their daily life. And I'm also just starting on a new project where I'm really interested in how modest fashion impacts on women in the workplace, whether or not they consider themselves to be um, religious adherents of any form. So one part of this project is looking at um, UK women who, for professional reasons, have cause to work in Saudi Arabia, not as expats, not long term, um, but for example, women who become senior in, let's say, the finance sector, who have to go to regular meetings in Riyadh. Well, you know, many of these women, because they've managed to become senior in what was and sometimes is still a male dominated profession, they were often that generation of women who were the first women in the boardroom. The whole power dressing, you know, how do you wear a suit to work that looks business like but is still suitably, quote, feminine? They've had to give considerable thought to how they dress. And then they pitch up for a meeting in Riyadh and somebody gives them a badly fitting abaya. Where do they get their abayas? Is there a buyer, an abaya for a princess or an abaya for a janitor? Or is it an abaya for a senior woman exec in the finance sector? How do they learn the body management necessary to wear it? Are, um, who are the fashion mediators who are assisting them with this? And how does it change the way they experience themselves as a gendered person at work and the way that the men that they know and the men that they meet engage with them in the gender segregated spaces of Saudi Arabia. These both sound like really worthwhile projects and they sound like they're going to take you to sort of these very complex and interlacing um, structures, sort of again, these like bloated, but beautifully bloated books. So I'm really excited to see them. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure and congratulations on the book. It's such an accomplishment, very readable, very well, I mean, you set the chapter so well. I mean, yeah, I really loved it. Thank you so much. And thank you for all your thoughtful questions and for giving me such a long time to answer them. Mm -hmm.